Neil deGrasse Tyson has said the good thing about science is that it's true whether you or not believe in it. The astrophysicist and pop culture icon has brought science into the mainstream, sharing with the world his love of the subject through his books, television appearances, and podcasts. We'll talk with Neil deGrasse Tyson about where we should be in space by now and the realities that limit our advances. Plus, art imitates life, but how much does life imitate art? When it comes to technological advances, it seems much can be attributed to pop culture and science fiction, including the cell phone, 3D printing, robot vacuums, even self-driving cars. Today, we'll explore the influence these forms of entertainment have had on our everyday lives. And our phone lines are open, 888-486-9677. Town Square with Ernie Manus is made possible with support from listeners like you. Subscribe to our daily podcast and find episodes at townsquaretalk.org. Hello, I'm Ernest, and this is Town Square. On this Friday, we're talking pop culture, science fiction, have inspired the technology we use today. Star Trek was the inspiration for a number of items we use in our everyday lives, be it our cell phones or even Bluetooth technology. That conversation is coming up, but our first guest today has played a huge role in popularizing science with his books, Astrophysics for People in a Hurry, Welcome to the Universe, or his newest title, Starry Messenger. He was the former host of Nova Science Now on PBS and the current host of Star Talk Podcast. Of course, we're talking about the one and only Neil deGrasse Tyson. He'll be appearing Monday night at a sold-out event right here in Houston at Jones Hall for Performing Arts Houston. Without further ado, here with me is Neil deGrasse Tyson, astrophysicist and the director of the Hayden Planetarium in New York City. Hello there, sir. Hey, hey, thank, thanks for having me on. Are you with me? I think there might there be like a are. couple of tickets left. It's great to have you. Uh, oh, okay, well then, folks, check it the out. Center, but, uh, yeah. It must feel great, though, to know that there's that kind of enthusiasm for the talks you are giving, for the subject matter you cover, where a lot of people, when they're younger, struggle not to go to classes about this stuff. You've made it popular, interesting, and exciting for people to learn more. Yeah, I, I, would, I don't think that I made it popular. I think I noticed <laughs> that people are already interested in it, and it's just a, well, how do you package it and, 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 and share that with the general public. Uh, and and on, on Monday, the topic is all about space. It's, it's, a, <laughs> it's a little bit controversial. It's titled Delusions of Space Enthusiasts. And Houston <laughs> is a very space-aware community. So that one, I think, riled up everybody's interest. But I'm there to share my enthusiasm with the universe with people who already have some interest. So I'm really just, I'm just serving a, the mm -hmm. public's, I'm a servant of the public's curiosity. <laughs> I think you're more than just a servant of it. You've definitely crafted the way we look at it and helped make many people dig deeper to learn more. And part of that, and one thing I really wanted to talk with you about today, is the whole concept of facts or what is truth. And I think a lot of people will point to what we went through with the pandemic when it comes to science and truth and information. And some people will be saying, see, look at how we use these tools to do better, learn more, and to put it, uh, to stall out this pandemic. Others will say, oh, but see, everything kept changing, so there was no fact in science. Help set the record straight on that. Yeah, very important topic to address here. Uh, in fact, there's an entire chapter of that 
latest book, the Starry Messenger book. Uh, actually, it's called Truth and Beauty. Uh, half of that chapter is about what truth is and how we measure it and why we know if something is true or if something isn't. And what I did was I separated the world into three kinds of truths. So one of them I, I called your personal truth. And that's something that's true to you, whether or not it's true to someone else. So if Jesus is your savior in a free country, no one is going to take that from you. All right. Or Mohammed is your last prophet on earth. No one is going to take that from you. But Mm -hmm. in order to convince someone else of your personal truth, it will require some very powerful act of persuasion. And in the limit, as we've seen in the history of civilization, in some cases, outright warfare. All right. So, but other personal truths would be is Beyonce your queen, right? Things like that uh, that matter to you and won't <laughs> necessarily matter to someone else. Um, so, an, another truth I, I I just called the it would be like a political truth. So that would be the same as propaganda in the sense that it's something that becomes true in your mind because it was repeated so often. We have this susceptibility mm-hmm. evolving, you know, in the plains of Africa, where if you see something recurring, chances are it's a real thing, all right? And so you're emotionally, you say to yourself, yeah, if the lion is running after me, it wants to eat me because it eats everything else I see it running after, so I'm going to run, all right? So the, re- the, the, the repeatability of certain phenomena feeds to our belief that it's actually true. Well, in modern times, that's been co-opted. That susceptibility has been co-opted, basically in the form of propaganda. So that's why when you see political commercials, they will hammer a point. doesn't matter whether it's true. They want you to believe it so that you vote one way instead of another. So that's basically the foundations of propaganda. And the third truth that article, objective truths. And these are the truths that the methods and tools of science are exquisitely tuned to establish. And an objective truth is I do an experiment and I get a result, but that's not the truth yet uh, because I might have been biased or maybe the wall current glitched during my experiment because it was plugged into the wall. Somebody else repeats the experiment and they get a similar result. Somebody else does the experiment of a different design. And maybe they're in another country with, a, with 240 volts instead of 120 volts. And if we all start getting the same result, oh, my gosh, there it is. We have a new objective <laughs> truth in the house. And so that's what science does. But on the frontier of science, then you can have one result be different from another. And so you don't know which to trust until you have a, an accumulation of results. And what happens often is that the press eavesdrops on the coffee lounges of science conferences, and they'll pick whatever result they just heard, make a headline out of it, and then a result changes a week later, and they think scientists don't know what the hell we're doing. Well, on the frontier, we're still exploring what is true, for sure. But after that, that stuff is true whether or not you believe in it. And if you're going to base laws and legislation on some reality, that's the truth you should seek. Yeah. 
Uh, something kind of uh, similar to that in conversation is the idea of us looking for outcomes we want, desiring what we want the results to be and not letting science actually take us there. And I'm curious if we take it to the broadest sense and we look at the Webb telescope and we think to ourselves, are we or should we be looking for something we are looking for or should we just be looking through it to see what it shows us? Uh, this is a brilliant question. And so first of all, what you describe is a very important bias that affects us all, right? It's, it's you remember the hits and not the misses. You, you, mm-hmm. you have an urge to want something to be true, and you, you somehow gloss over that which conflicts with what you want to be true. And in the end, when it's time for you to report, you'll say, I found this, and therefore that's true. Well, how about this? Oh, I didn't notice that. But no, it, you might even deny that it actually happened. When you go back to the videotape, nope, there it is. And so very important bias. And it's, mm-hmm. a, uh, it's a kind of a selection bias to satisfy your own expectations of the world. You want to take that to the frontier of modern science, such as the web. All telescopes have modes that they'll operate in. We know this in advance because we know just because we're scientists doesn't mean we're not susceptible to bias, but we are self-aware that we're susceptible to bias. And that's an important mm-hmm. extra step that we take. So you're right. If we, we design the telescope based on what we know and the expectations that what we know uh, uh, tell us, all right? But a well-designed telescope will be in like in a, will have a serendipity mode. We just say, just look anywhere. Mm-hmm. Just pick a spot and then expose the lens and then let's see what comes. And some of the greatest discoveries have come because of that. New kinds of objects, objects behaving in ways nobody expected. And so, yes, we have to be very careful about missing the things we're not looking for simply because we weren't looking for, even though they're, 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 in, 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 they're, they're hidden in plain sight. Do you bring these kind of lessons into your own life and how you process things? Yes, yes. And again, like I said, scientists are we're people, so we will have biases. So what you do is, uh, if I have a result and I say, you know, I'm not sure about this because I kind of wanted it to be this way, I'll take it to a colleague. I'll take it to someone else who has, who has a trained sort of rational analysis of information and data. And I'll say, uh, t- and without even telling them what to look for, I say, what do you find when you look at this? Rather than, do you see the same thing I do? See, that would be biasing them, <laughs> right? So right. the little steps, you want to avoid the pre-bias so that you get the cleanest possible result back. And so science at its best will, uh, winnows out those risks. And that's what peer review is all about. Mm-hmm. Peer review is, help me make sure that I'm not biasing my own results. And if you fight, even in the face with your own bias, and you don't see your own bias, that could end your career. No one will believe anything you publish afterwards. So we're very serious about this bias thing. Yeah. In ways the public, I don't think the public is fully trained in. And so we need more bias training in school. It's not just how much science did you learn in the science book, is 
what are the methods and tools of science that allows a scientist to declare something as true, even if they wanted it to have a different result, and vice versa. That's where, that's where science distinguishes itself from essentially all other, um, uh, uh, all other branches of human inquiry. I know we're short on time today. I'd love to have you come back when we can talk longer. But before we run out in the last oh, 90 seconds or so, uh, I'm going to jump over to alien life forms and simply ask you, in vain with what we've been talking about, are we missing what it means to say alien life and are caught up in this whole concept of what alien beings are supposed to look like? Yeah, well, we got our movies to... To I was going to say to guide us, no, but to confuse us. <laughs> all, the aliens in the movies, you notice they all have like two eyes, a nose, a mouth, a head, neck, shoulders, arms. They might have four fingers instead of five. And I'm thinking, that's not very creative. We have life <laughs> on Earth with whom we have DNA in common that looks more different than your aliens you putting in your movie. But, you know, how about an oak tree or lobster or a worm? Or just just look at the biodiversity on our own planet, for goodness sake. So, so, but you're right. You want to make sure that if you're looking for alien life, as we have and we will continue to do so, you don't only want to look for life as we know it. Mm-hmm. Because the diversity of physiology and chemistry may come up with something far outside of our zone of expectation. And so, yes, even those experiments need to be ready for anything. And by the way, what people have put forth as aliens having visited would not convince a, 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 an authentic skeptic. Just, just bring an alien. Use your smartphone and video an alien coming out of their flying saucer. That would be viral instantly. We have yeah. cat videos that go viral. You know an alien walking up to you is going to go viral. Okay? Then yeah. it's not a matter. Let's analyze this fuzzy smudge in a monochromatic video in restricted Navy airspace. Yeah, we're being invaded by aliens. I'm sorry, I'm not, I'm not that gullible. I'm sorry. Well, one of my favorite things yeah. you've said about aliens is if we've got an alien, we should bring them to the town square. Our show's called Town Square, so if you find an alien, will you bring him back here for oh, us? Oh, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> give me a call. If they take it to your offices, give me a call. Thank you very much. Neil deGrasse Tyson, thank you for joining us today. I hope you'll come back and join us again. Excellent. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Neil deGrasse Tyson, astrophysicist and director of the Hayden Planetarium in New York City. Again, he will be appearing Monday night right here in Houston at Jones Hall, presented by Performing Arts Houston. Look that up. See if you can find some tickets for it. It could be a fascinating evening. Coming up, self-driving cars used to seem very futuristic, but now they've become a reality. Remember Batman summoning his Batmobile? How has popular culture inspired today's technological advances? We'll explore that next. And what are some of your favorite advances? Or what are your thoughts on sci-fi guiding technology? Our phone lines are open at 888-486-9677, 888-4-TOWN-SQUARE. This is Town Square on your NPR station, News 88.7. I'm Ernie Manous. We'll be right back.
I'm Ernie Manoose, and this is Town Square. From cell phones to robotic limbs, the 3D printer to AI voice assistants. Much of the technology we have today was first seen and heard on screen or in science fiction books. How much innovation is led by the ideas and fantasies of these entertainment creators and authors? To find out more, joining us is Dr. Ed Finn, founding director of the Center for Science and the Imagination at Arizona State University. Dr. Finn, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. And Dr. Chris Bronk, associate professor of information science and technology and director of the graduate cybersecurity program at University of Houston and a good friend of our show. Dr. Bronk, welcome back. It's great to be back, Ernie. Thank you. And we welcome you to call in and join the conversation with your thoughts and ideas, questions at 888-486-9677. That's 888-4-TOWN-SQUARE. You can also email us at talk at townsquaretalk.org. Okay, Dr. Finn, I'm going to start with you. I just love the name of your center, and I'd love for you to explain what you folks do at the Center for Science and the Imagination. I feel like I have the best job in the world, so thank you. <laughs> it's so much fun. Uh, our mission is to inspire collective imagination for better futures. And what we mean by that is if we want to change the future, we need to change the story that we tell about the future. So most people today don't really think about the future at all, or maybe it's something kind of makes you anxious or depressed when you think about it. You know, think about big problems on the horizon like climate change and automation and AI. But if we just bury our heads in the sand, you know, the future is not going to go away. It just means that somebody else is driving that bus and making the big choices about what we're going to get. So our work is to bring writers and artists together with scientists, engineers, students, all sorts of folks to practice imagining the future together and to come up with technically grounded, plausible stories about worlds we might actually want to live in. And using that, these stories about the future as a way to make choices about what we want to change right now. Dr. Bronk, stepping away from the uh, center we were just talking about, have the wrong people been influencing the direction we have gone with science and technology? Well, I, I think that there's this problem that, that um, we have this you know, both sides issue where someone will make an outlandish claim about something that we generally accept to be scientifically true, and it's like, well, what's the other side of the world being round? So I think there's that kind of discussion on science that goes on. Um, but, but this idea, I mean, I, there's a great presentation I saw years ago about how scientists are portrayed in media. And that it's always the mad scientist or the scientist who has, you know, a utopian belief, but it requires doing something that will disrupt humanity. Um, and, you know, my question actually would, you know, I, I'd ask, ask your question or answer your question with a question, which is, um, do you think that people who have made the current technology are the right people to be doing it? Mm -hmm. Well, but I guess I wonder, we put out through our, our fiction or our imagination as writers and artists, we put out these ideas. And then it seems technology is successful if they can figure them out. The stuff we saw in Star Trek, the more we make of it, the more happy we are. But had it not been for the influence of Gene Roddenberry, maybe we would have gone in a different direction. Maybe if science were left to scientists, they would have put us somewhere with something else that may have been as beneficial, may have been more beneficial. Ed, what do you think? I really think of it as a dialogue or a feedback loop between science fiction and real technology and innovation. Because first of all, you need 
to, you can't you can't start to build the future until you have the words to describe it, and that's one mm-hmm. of the places where science fiction shines. It gives us the new language uh, that inspires people to actually make stuff real. But it's always a dialogue, and all the science fiction writers we work with at the center are are avid geeks, you know, and they're deeply <laughs> they're reading the latest. They they want it, They they like hanging out with us because they get access to cutting edge research, which is really important for them, and it feeds their imaginations. So. All of these people are talking to one another, you know, and and that ongoing conversation that can sometimes take years and decades and even centuries where somebody picks up a book and says, oh, wow, you know, uh, Mary Shelley wrote Frankenstein 200 years ago, and all of a sudden it feels very real and not not so science fictional anymore. High school students are making genetically engineered creations every year. So that long conversation about what we want to imagine together is something that really it cuts both ways and you know it in what's what's great about the storytelling part of it is that you don't have to be an electrical engineer or or a celebrated science fiction writer anybody can read a story and step into that world and then say hmm do do I like this do I not like this is this a future I want to live in so there's a real emancipation that goes on there in the storytelling Chris, let me then flip it. And is it due to the success of a lot of science fiction and art that we see that helps support and encourage science and technology to move forward? Yeah, I mean, there's unquestionably, you know, if you look at the readership in computer science departments or in in any kind of heavy technological departments, I mean, there is, you know, you know, Big Bang Theory might be, a, a you know, a, an academic trope. But there is certainly truth to, you know, my colleagues and I had our vision shaped by reading and watching uh, uh, portrayals of technology in science fiction. I mean, I grew up reading Omni magazine in the late 70s and early 80s, you know, which was a, a you know, completely unprofitable offshoot of penthouse publisher Bob Guccione, where it was his, you know, it was his, his vanity publication for him. It was the thing he loved. And, you know, it put out there the, the term cyberspace in the early 80s. Fast forward 40 years and we have a cyber command at, at Fort Meade in Maryland that, that has thousands of soldiers and civilians working there. So I think that, that it's exactly right. It, it, it is a feedback loop where it's like, you know, we can imagine these things and the technology actually catches up. And again and again, we're seeing things that we saw in story, you know, in these monographs. And, and the one that always comes back to me um, is um, a super sad love story, which is this, this science fiction dystopian near future book about a society addicted to mobile telecommunications devices. <laughs> oh, that could never happen. Not in a million years. So, <laughs> so yeah, I mean, I mean, we get warnings in them. Um, you know, the one time I was written up at UH for, for maybe crossing the line in the classroom was a, a discussion where we were doing news of the week. And we said, you know, Harris, Pro- Harris County, where we live, passed a, a no robot brothel uh, 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 <laughs> restriction. And it was like, well, we're not quite there yet, but maybe not a bad idea. And, you know, I don't want, I don't want the robots to get mad at us anyway. So, okay, well, let's go with that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh- Ed, let me ask you, if, if this story is correct, it seems as though when Steven Spielberg was making Minority Report, he gathered like 15 experts to talk about technology and think about what the future would hold in a world of 2054 to help him create a more realistic future for his film. 
How much does that happen? How much do these creators lean on scientists to help them craft what we're being sold in our box offices and on TV and in books? It happens at different levels, and that's one of the high watermarks where they really explicitly set out to bring these experts together, and they actually started with that, with the world building, driven by all of these different people coming together, and then they came, with, came up with the script later. So, and we actually hosted a little uh, celebration and anniversary for Minority Report. I think it was the 25th anniversary, maybe the 20th anniversary here at ASU, uh, mm-hmm. which was super fun and brought a bunch of those folks together. So that's a high watermark, but often you'll see uh, filmmakers, Hollywood folks, uh, storytellers go, you know, talk to scientists because they want to get the details right. Uh, but, you know, the, where, where things fall apart is when you, you do that at the last minute or you say, hey, can you get help me put the right, you know, techno babble into this one line of my movie at the end rather than actually thinking about it from the beginning. And what makes Minority Report special is that they went through this really detailed big big blue sky exercise say all right well what if we imagine this world where you can predict crime before it happens and you know building out all of these other aspects of it and uh the result is something that has inspired many more people uh and inspired a lot of real innovation so alex mcdowell who was the production designer for that movie says he's counted over a hundred patents that were inspired by the movie (laughs) That's fascinating. I want to remind everyone we are talking with Dr. Ed Finn, professor of the School for the Future of Innovation in Society at Arizona State University, and Dr. Chris Bronk, professor of Information Science and Technology at the University of Houston. This is Town Square. I'm Ernie Manus. Why don't you share with us something you've seen in a film that you would like to see in everyday life? Or if you've got questions or comments about what we're talking about right now, 888 486 9677. That's 8884 Town Square. Chris, uh, when we go back and we look at the early series of Star Trek and we see so much of that has come to pass, um, was Gene Roddenberry just really good at predicting the future? Or to go back to an earlier question, did Star Trek push us to look for these certain things? And if so, how come we don't have transporters yet? Well, you know, physics is a bear. It's, it's hard. <laughs> uh, um, you know, the thing that uh, impresses me so much, you know, Gene Roddenberry writes this show, you know, it, it, you know, at the near peak of the Cold War, you know, and he has his officers, uh, you know, an Asian-American man and an African-American woman. And he, he puts together this construct of people being equal. And that's the thing I will always see as the contribution of Star Trek is it's in our future, we're all equals. They're, 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 the racial politics of our time are gone. And oh, by the way, there's all these neat, neat gizmos. And, you know, we've, you know, it, it, we've reached a point now where the name Enterprise for, for a spacecraft is, is more, you know, tied to that than it, it would be to the, you know, the Navy vessels that have carried the name, you know, for over 200 years. Um, but there's something, you know, that captures our imagination about what Roddenberry put out there and then, and kept coming back to. But it was always this construct of, of a peaceful society, of a progressive society, and one at peace with technology somehow. Although he teases out again and again, especially in the second series that ran in the 80s and 90s, you know, where technology leads us wrong and the limits of technology and, and, and how high technology societies should or shouldn't interact with low technology ones, 
which is something that was plucked from the Amazon when he was writing the show. So I think that it's a fascinating, incredible vision for the future. Uh, there's some pretty cornball moments in the original 60s version, <laughs> but, uh, you know, tribbles. But, um, you know, it does set out a lot of things that we view as, you know, almost second nature today that, you know, this is, you know, the future is going to look like this and we are going to conquer the stars and we're going to have an imagination. And if you look at what, what the billionaires of our time are doing, you know, are they, are they doing aviation races or something? No, they're going to space. You know, that is, you know, what they see as next is it's, it's the American West of their time. So, you know, we'll see what happens, but, you know, I think that that program Really, and it was so different than anything. You got to remember, it ran at the same time that shows like Bonanza were running. Arthur T. Clark has this wonderful saying that he he threw out, and he said, you know, you know, basically the the politicians of our day need to listen to, you know, read science fiction stories, not westerns, you know, because those are the kind of problems they're going to deal with in the future. Yeah. We're going to take a quick break right now. We are talking with Dr. Chris Bronk, the director of the Graduate Cybersecurity Program at UH, and Dr. Ed Finn, founding director of the Center for Science and the Imagination at ASU. Our phone lines are open at 888-486-9677. That's 888-4-TOWN-SQUARE. We were stuck a little bit in the 60s. I'm going to take us back 100 years before that when we come back, so don't go anywhere. Remember, you can interact with us and follow us on Twitter using at Town Square Talk. And to ensure you never miss an episode, remember to subscribe to the Town Square with Ernie Manus podcast wherever you get your podcasts. This is Town Square on your NPR station news 88.7. I'm Ernie Manus. We'll be right back. This is Town Square. I'm Ernie Manus. On Monday's show, Houston has been at the forefront of addressing homelessness in America. We'll talk with experts who are leading the efforts. Plus, how art is bringing the unheard and misunderstood experiences of those experiencing homelessness to light in a world premiere opera. That's Monday at 3, right here in the Square. You can email us your questions now at talk at townsquaretalk.org. Today, we're talking about how pop culture and science fiction have inspired the technology that we use every day. With me is Dr. Ed Finn, founding director of the Center for Science and the Imagination at Arizona State University, and Dr. Chris Bronk, associate professor of, tech, of information science and technology at the University of Houston. And our phone line is 888-486-9677. That's 888 888-4- town square okay ed back to you on this one we were kind of stuck a little bit in the early 60s mid 60s take me back a hundred years before then because you can almost say well you know the 60s the space program was just getting going probably this stuff was being talked about when jules verne wrote he was actually pretty much looking into the abyss in some ways and had some answers that we're experiencing today correct yeah, it's kind of amazing. You know, in his uh, book, From the Earth to the Moon, he anticipated, he got a lot of things right. He figured out roughly, he did it, did his math pretty well on how much velocity you would need to get to the moon. And he uh, correctly envisioned that you would want to launch something from Florida uh, that would be in the United States. 
He was even not that far off in terms of the amount of money he thought it would cost if you, you know, correct for uh, inflation over time. So, of course, he thought it was going to be a, a group of three men shot out of a giant gun. <laughs> so, <there were> some <laughs> so that was a little different. <laughs> some differences. But his and, and a lot of his novels really inspired engineers and scientists, and his certainly did. And there's a it, space exploration is one of the areas where I think that feedback loop between science fiction and real science has been the tightest. And there's been a long, ongoing dialogue because so much of the uh, the, the world of, of real space is is people sitting around and spitballing, thinking, well, what what can we do? How could we build something up there? And all those great stories from the Apollo missions really come down to a group of people imagining together. So Vern and people like Arthur C. Clarke uh, really inspired a lot of the, the real technological developments we've seen in space. I want to remind everyone, our number, 888-486-9677. That's 888-4-TOWN-SQUARE. Alan is on the line. Alan, what's on your mind today? Hey, hi, Ernie. Hello there. Yes, uh, I wanted to comment. Uh, you're speaking about 100 years ago, but uh, working 100 years into the future, I'm a participant uh, member with uh, Dr. Mae Jemison's 100-year starship. We recently... Uh, completed the Nexus Nairobi, and those are both on the internet if you want to look at it, 100yss.org and uh, Nexus Nairobi, the capital of Kenya, .org. But anyway, um, looking 100 years into the future for, you know, traveling to the stars, trying to develop the technology and everything needed now, to go because once you get out there uh, a few light years away, well, you're not going to be able to communicate back home that quickly. But I wanted to comment on gravity. Star Trek, uh, that's one of the unrealities I saw so much on with that show, is they never portrayed lack of gravity or differences in gravity on their different planets they visited. It was always Earth-like uh, worlds. But Looking to the reality of the future, if humans travel to Mars and live on Mars for successive generations, their bodies are going to be acclimated to Mars gravity, and those people will not, without a whole lot of conditioning and workout, ever be able to visit Earth because their bodies will not be able to take Earth's gravity because Mars gravity is only 38% of Earth. So if you wait, you know. Alan, I'm going to jump right in here because I want to get a response from our guests. But thank you for calling in. Chris, you got to take that one. What happens if we start to get acclimated to Mars's surface? I mean, this is something that once again has been, that has been coped with uh, in science fiction. I mean, uh, you know, there's this program, The Expanse, that's run several series. And it talks about, you know, if you're, if you're a tough, badass character in on from mars you train at, at earth gravity you know even though you're not going to earth i mean so i mean how humanity and and this is one of the things where it does connect to science right here in our town where there is a huge community of scientists and engineers who study you know zero g life you know we put people up at the space station now for you know incredibly long periods of time compared to any other thing we had done before well you know the russians did some long 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 sojourns on their station through the 80s and 90s 
but we learn a lot about, you know, the things that we hadn't necessarily thought about um, before astronauts go up and spend a lot of time away. So, you know, humanity branching out across just our, our solar system is going to have major health repercussions for the people who do it, um, radiation being not least of them. So, I mean, it, it's, it's going to be a hazard of, of, of the business for the explorers to do it. And, you know, it's, it's potentially um, a species-changing um, influence, which is pretty interesting. Thank you for that. I guess science does have the answers. We just have to ask the right questions and give them time to solve them. Ed, let me ask you, how far are we with all this talk of AI these days? How far are we from HAL locking us out of our own spaceship? How many times have you been locked out of your phone? (laughs) (laughs) So I should be scared of all this AI. (laughs) You know, the funny thing about AI is that none of us really knows what we're talking about. Nobody knows what artificial intelligence means. And we, because we don't know what intelligence means, you know, going back to Alan Turing wrote this great paper in the 1950s where he came up with the idea of the Turing test because people really wanted to get his answer. You know, how will we know if we ever build intelligent machines? And he said, look, that's a ridiculous question. I don't know what, you know, we don't know what these words mean, but if a machine can basically trick you into thinking that it's a human uh, through passing messages back and forth, then we might as well call it intelligent, right? Because it's, it's fooling us. And we're already there. We're at this, this moment now with ChatGPT and these incredible creative AI art generators that are producing work that uh, surprises us, shows us something that we've never seen before, uh, and increasingly is able to engage in a kind of collaboration with humans. And that, I think, is really exciting. We could, we could again, spend all of our, you know, we could put our heads into the sand and say, oh, this is terrible and we have to shut all these things off, but we're not going to unring these bells. We need to find ways to collaborate with them. So because we don't really know what AI is, that also means that we're, we're basically making up AI. Yeah, and this is where the sci- science fictional character of AI, think about, we, there are a few stories we tell, like the Terminator story, you know, the killer robot story, or the robot girlfriend story, like Ex Machina. Uh, and then there's sort of the God computer, the super, super, uh, super intelligence story. Um, we, we, we tell these stories from science fiction, and they color all of our interactions with real AI. And we have, you know, there are people who let Alexa, you know, read bedtime stories to their kids now. And so we, we're in the middle of our cultural revolution with AI at this very moment as we speak. And it, it almost doesn't matter how capable these systems really are. It just matters what we think they're doing. And we're working through that collectively. And it's, it's going to be a wild ride. So let me ask this then. Should there be and who should be deciding what kind of guidelines or limits should be put on this technology, or should it just, science for science's sake, let's see what we can come up with? It's a great question, and I think we absolutely need to get better at putting up some ethical boundaries and frameworks around this. And it, it, it's really on all of us. So in terms of the people designing and building the systems, they need to be more transparent about what's happening, where they're getting their data from, what tools they're using, and giving people, coming up with better ways to give us access, you know, building windows into the black box, because otherwise, even the engineers, the researchers who build some of these things don't really know why they do what they do. And that's not a good way to, you know, not a good way to to live your life. Uh, And for, for everybody, I think we need to get better at developing a kind of literacy around these systems and just understand a little bit more uh, 
not that everybody needs to go out and learn how to program or something, but but understand some of the foundations of how these systems work, what symbolic logic and what kind of math and what kind of uh, failure modes there might be. You know, one of the big issues we have is somebody designs a tool and then somebody else picks it up and uses it for a completely different purpose. And mm-hmm. nobody figures out that there are these really dangerous edge cases, right, where all of a sudden something really bad can happen. So building that sense of literacy, transparency, accountability, and probably at all levels. You know, there's a top-down side to that. There's a bottom-up side to that. Uh, And most of all, talking about it, because what we have right now is this world with so much hype in it. uh, And the people who are building these tools are really trying to sell their product, make their Mm -hmm. startup go, you know, and and, uh, so the incentives are not in the right places. I want to go back to the phones, but Chris, I know this is something you're passionate about. Any reactions to that? Uh, to the AI piece, sure. Yeah. I mean, it, it's remarkable to see you know, when advances do happen, and everybody is talking about ChatGPT now, and you know those interactions you have with it. And it's you know people come to me and say, you know, what's AI? What's what? What does it really mean? What's it doing? And it's it's it, it's exactly right. Professor Finn's exactly right. It's this conception in our minds. You know, when someone comes to me and says, well, I want to build a machine learning model that does a thing, I'm like, okay, that's real. Um, when we talk about AI that's going to do a thing. But when we start to project outward, this all reminds me of a conversation that I, I overheard a couple of pre-med students uh, having with a couple of engineers a few years ago. And the engineer said to the pre-med student, he said, uh, well, you know, how do you feel about going into a career where you'll be replaced by an algorithm? And the, and the pre-med student said, oh, I'm going to be a doctor. What are you talking about? And the engineer said, you know, all the doctors in Star Wars are robots. <laughs> and it was just like one of those moments of like, yeah, I had never noticed that, but now I come to think of it. So, you know, this idea that we could program things. But the other piece of science fiction I always love to bring to the fore whenever we have the AI discussion is that, that not often watched, but now cult film uh, Idiocracy, Mike Judge's movie that, that was a complete flop, but now it mean, has cult status with people. And they look at a world where machines are able to make most human decisions for them. And it's not a very pretty place. Mm -hmm. Let me remind everyone, we are talking with ASU's Dr. Ed Finn and University of Houston's Dr. Chris Bronk and our phone number, 888-486-9677. Thomas, you're up next. What's on your mind? Uh, I got a 1950 uh, DVD for British film from 1950 called Seven Days to Noon. It's about a mad scientist who threatens to explode a dirty bomb in the heart of London. And he carries it around inside of a briefcase. Is that sort of technology possible? I think we've already seen that. Dr. Bronk, your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, setting off a dirty bomb in a city is a, a very uh, real possibility or probability. Um, and it's just really, it comes down to uh, how does someone miniaturize a nuclear uh, device to that point and get the nuclear fuel to make it happen. It's a very real and valid concern. Uh, U.S. Department of Homeland Security has radiological detectors on vehicle lanes and at airports all over the country. Uh, Dr. Finn, let me ask you then, taking you back to the same theme I keep hitting you up with, about technology coming across as evil and are uh, giving it uh, ideas that it, it has purpose and ideas and thoughts and plans as opposed to simply being a tool that we humans control. Well, the way I think about this is that for 
millennia, ever since we were humans, really, we've been creating tools. And every time we create a new tool, and, and I include art in that too, right? So storytelling, cave paintings on a wall, we're always trying to build this mirror into ourselves. We want to understand ourselves better. So every tool is an instrument we use to understand the universe, like a telescope, but it's also like a mirror we're trying to use to understand ourselves. And that's, by the way, how I think about AI. One of my favorite AI movies is Her, and that idea of building this intimate relationship with an AI. Uh, So what's different now, and what Her plays out really beautifully, is that now our tools are also watching us, right? They're also reacting and adapting to us. And that's new, where it's no longer just a hammer that sits there and you you hold a hammer and you say, all right, everything looks like a nail. Now you have a hammer that looks at you and is trying to figure out what, you, what you're going to do next and, you know, change its shape to, to fit that next next step. So that's a remarkable new kind of dynamic relationship. And it, it, to, to the, bring it back to that notion of good and evil, you know, it just uh, highlights again how important it is for us to try to come up with these guidelines and, and ground rules. But there is one thing that I think technology could really help us with that we, we tend to overlook, which is that you know, computers, algorithms, all of our technology is good at we, – we build these things because they're good at doing things that we're bad at right? Like counting how many steps you take in a day. But what if we built more algorithms and computers to, to remi- remind us to be good, remind us to be better people, right? Little nudges. You know, there's no reason that all of our social media systems need to be these like giant pyramids of funneling money and attention up to a small group of people. They could be organized in different ways. They could be more modeled more around getting people to be good, be better people. Now, that's easier said than done. And, yeah, you know, why do who's going to decide what this, good is? But yeah, why do we end up with this model then? What is it in our nature that that we continue to allow this to function in that direction? Well, I think some of it is is the the people who are building the, the first and the best prototypes are you know there there there's always a self interest guide there, right? So p- people who built Facebook or built Twitter, you know, they're they're trying to amass the following they're trying to get a group of people together and there isn't anything intrinsically wrong with that but it's a a a model that's ultimately about making money most of these things are and if we could find a different founding model for what these things that now are really so essential to our lives right they're like uh i don't know like a public utility or something you know maybe we need a different model to think about how we use these technologies, and certainly how we talk about ethics. You know, it's funny, in our work, we almost never lead off with ethics. We say, hey, want to read a cool science fiction story about the future? Because if you lead off with, hey, you want to think about some ethics with us? You know, <laughs> all of a sudden, the room really empties out. Yeah. Chris, I've got about 15 seconds left. Bring us home today. Bring us home today? You know, the best thing that I, I've felt about bringing science fiction into higher education is that it opens the imagination. And, you know, the, the book that I still assign occasionally to students who have to think about doing things differently is uh, Orson Scott Card's Ender's Game. And I think everyone should give it a read. Such a great book. Well, gentlemen, I'm happy we ended on a note like that. Thank you to both of you for coming in. Dr. Finduff, Dr. Bronk, I hope you'll join us again. Have a great weekend. Thanks. Thank yeah, you, you too. 
Thanks. Thank you. Dr. Ed Finn is a founding director of the Center for Science and the Imagination at Arizona State University. And Dr. Chris Bronk is associate professor of information science and technology and director of the graduate cybersecurity program at the University of Houston. If you missed any of today's show, remember Town Square. It's available as a daily podcast wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter or Instagram at Town Square Talk. On Mondays, Houston Matters with Craig Cohen. How we get our sports through broadcast and streaming is in flux. So how to get access to the games you really want to watch. That's Monday at 9 a.m. And then Monday at 3 p.m. right here, we're taking a look at homelessness in Houston. Until then, I'm Ernie Manoose. Thanks for joining us. Town Square with Ernie Manoose is produced by Jennifer Altide, Garrett Bullman, Ernie Manoose, David Pittman, Brenda Valdivia, and Houston Public Media. The opinions expressed by guests and callers do not necessarily reflect the views of the staff, management, or underwriters of this station. Medical opinions should not replace consultation with a medical professional.